Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Oh, yeah, we've come a far, far way, ladies. I just heard, I heard that voice say, your host, Lynn Cullen, because when I started, ah, sorry, itchy allergy eyes. When I started um, in broadcasting, um, I was a hostess, and I was a weekend weather girl. Yeah. So I tell you, we've we're really doing it. Uh, I welcome, by the way. It's uh, what is it? It's the 14th of June. Almost halfway through June. <laughs> I haven't really begun complaining about the hot weather, and before you know it, we'll be complaining about the cold weather. Yiko. So I, I guess it was, uh, it was just meant to be uh, that the day after uh, my hour-long rant, uh, which constituted yesterday's program, um, an op-ed should appear, a column, uh, in the New York Times. Uh, decrying people like me, and this is written by a, a liberal and a guy I really listen to and respect, Frank Bruni. And uh, I see that Kristen here passed it along to me. Um, and I, I thank you for that. I, I had seen it myself <laughs> because I... I already underscored, highlighted uh, main points that he's making. And uh, I'm going to throw it out to you because I blow both. I, I, I don't know that he's wrong. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know that he's right. And uh, I, I mean, yesterday I was filled with a uh, rage. I, I was filled with rage about what is becoming of our country. And um, I saw an, I saw very little hope. And uh, if you survived yesterday's program, uh, you know that. Not a person emailed me during it. Not a person called. So I was left to feel <laughs> like, as I told Amy, uh, my producer, after the show, I mean, I think everybody just ran screaming uh, from the sound of my voice because uh, why would anyone want to listen to that depressing rant? Um, and Frank Bruni uh, starts his piece, I think, I, by jumping on um, Robert De Niro and his 
his naughty little utterance about uh, the president on the live Tony's show, and then the standing ovation he got from uh, that elitist audience. And um, he said De Niro and Samantha B with her foul mouth thing about uh, the president's daughter are not helping. They're not helping our cause, which is to get rid of our the people who currently hold the power in our country and to replace those people with uh, people who think more like we do. And Frank Bruni uh, writes, I think uh, quite compellingly, that you don't, to use an old saw, you know, attract, uh, you don't attract people by screaming at them. Um, that you have to approach them with a better idea, not just tear down what exists, not to engage in just name-calling and all of that. Now, well, and then he really jumped on what I did yesterday, which was, I believe, I called ICE uh, the American Gestapo, and um, I might have invoked some other uh, Hitlerian uh, imagery. And I will read uh, now what Frank Bruni says in today's New York Times. Enough with Hitler, too. Has Trump shown fascistic tendencies? Yes. Is he the second coming of the Third Reich? No. Nor are the spineless Republicans who have enabled him Nazi collaborators, not on the evidence of what has and hasn't happened so far. I'm not urging complacency, he says, but when you invoke the darkest historical analogies, you lose many of the very Americans you're trying to win over. What you're saying isn't what they are seeing. It's overreach in their eyes. Uh, I understand what he's saying, but I, I, I want to say this. I don't think it's overreach. And when I am talking to you, I am not trying to win anybody over. I know the way it breaks down now that you basically agree with me. So I'm just exhorting the tribe. I am not in uh, winning them over mode and I frankly have scoffed at winning them over. There is no, I, and I will scoff at this, there is no winning over his base. I mean, he literally was correct when during the campaign he said I could, sh you know, shoot somebody on Park Avenue and 
Nobody would care. He can do anything, and they will not desert him. But I think Bruni is referring to millions of Americans who, and I know some of these people, who so despised Hillary Clinton or were so angry about Bernie Sanders' treatment by the establishment Democratic Party that they refused to vote for Hillary Clinton and instead voted for, you know, who knows who, Jill Stein or, or um, Donald Trump. In fact, I met a young man uh, in Allentown a few weekends ago when I was there who, who was a Bernie Sanders supporter, and he voted for Trump in the general election. And I guess I didn't try to win him over because I told him, I want to smash yeah, I smash your face in. I said, what? Um, and I think that kind of thing happens quite a lot. I think a lot of the Bernie folks uh, refuse to vote for Hillary. If we could get those votes back, we would not have Trump in the White House. So, yes, one can, I suppose, talk... Uh, sense to to people like that, um, but why is it Republicans can engage in the coarsest, most vitriolic language, where they can you know refuse to even have a hearing for uh, Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee? and act like that's business as usual and perfectly okay? How come they can play not only rough, but sort of cheat? And every time we engage in a behavior that is anything like that, we are immediately shushed, tamped down by our own by Frank Bruni and so many others. I, I really don't know, but I, I really feel it's all at war at this point. I think you do have to keep in mind that ultimately we've got to win over other voters. So I'm not one. I get very pragmatic then. I'm not one who, for instance, in choosing in a primary election, I don't go necessarily to the farthest left candidate who's running. Not necessarily. I look at the district. I look at who they might be running against. And I try to figure out who can win. That's all I care about now. Who can knock a Republican off in the general election? Oh, I don't know. We have a call. Let me let the caller in. Um, caller, hello? Hello. You kind of covered, you know, uh, what I was going to say as I was waiting. Because, you know, it's like in your first paragraph that you read that, you read that uh, Brunei or Bruni yeah. wrote that I, that I was thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, don't get down in the muck. Don't use name calling. And how did, how did Trump win? That's exactly how he won. Don't scream. What are you talking about? Don't denigrate. That, that, that's how he won. Yeah, that's how he won. <laughs> you know, and sadly to say, it works. You know, that's, that's, 
and you kind of covered it. That's like the liberals, they try to be Mr. Intellectuals and all that kind of good stuff. It doesn't work nowadays. It just doesn't. You know, and you said, like I said, who are, who are we going to win over? What Trump supporters are we going to win over? And you mentioned the kid that you ran into, you know, who yeah. was a Bernie supporter and ended up voting for Trump. He now knows what the hell can happen if you do that. Yes, he does. He, he did his little spite thing. Yeah. Now he knows. Now he knows. And he's sorry. He <laughs> is know? sorry. So he's yeah. 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 It, yeah. It's not going to happen again. It's not going to happen in the next election. Yeah. You know, no matter what happens, you know, do you want more Trumps? Do you want more, you know, racist senators and, you know, <laughs> openly racist senators and porn <laughs> and uh, pimps? Here's what the hustlers. That's what the Republican Party had turned into. Yeah, but you know, of course, yeah. what Bruni does toward the end of the article is invoke uh, Michelle Obama. When they go, oh, that, that. when they go low, we go high, and he said, and we aren't doing that. And then he made this, and and I think he's right about this, but. I don't think it makes his arguments. Back to De Niro, he says, uh, okay, so you gave De Niro a standing ovation, but never mind that he wrested the spotlight from the Parkland teenagers so that it was his negative message, not their positive one, that was the big story. Never mind that he squandered a chance to model a, a more dignified bearing than Trump's. He made the blue wave look iffier and Trump stronger were you clapping for that what do you think of that I, have, I, 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 don't, I don't even think he's right on his point okay. <laughs> Either he's making a point and then as liberals we go hmm interesting is, you know is, is that what happened uh, we'll wait and see that's all we can do is wait and see well I do want so to say he's right, right about you know he has an understanding of what becomes news if De Niro yeah. had not done that and had not mm -hmm. said anything, then the big story out of that Tony show would have been the, you know, heart. It would have been the Parkland teens and their performance. I didn't watch the show at all, so I. But, no, neither did I. Okay. You know, it was all news to me. The next but day. that would be the news so. we would be hearing, not Robert De Niro saying, you know, fuck Trump. Yeah. Um, and you know Samantha's Pete, Samantha B's use of the C word. Yeah. Now, <laughs> let's go back to when Trump was getting, you know, yeah. running for president. Yeah. And all of his insults and bad words, all that stuff that gave him news coverage. You know what I mean? And he won. And he all won. All his negativity, and he won. And he won. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's the that's that. Like I said, the the um, I don't know Ivy League liberal idea that you sit there and you analyze and you know contemplate and hypothesize you know to figure out what's going on Men meanwhile <laughs> you're losing yeah. you know wait till you get to wait till you get in office and do all your hypothesis and stuff like that it's a new game <laughs> you know with social media and all that kind of good stuff it's a new game i you agree know, with you the provocative wins yeah so okay because i i have to admit i was I mean, he got me thinking, oh, God, you know, yeah, your vitriol, what is it doing? It's not helping. But it's where I employ it. I mean, if I'm trying to win someone over in a in a one-on-one -on -one session at some social event, 
mm-hmm. I will try to remember that, yes, invoking Hitler might not be the way to do it. Instead, invoking uh, what's happening to uh, the Environmental Protection Agency or to taking children from parents and immigrants. Yeah. And, I mean, and I'll avoid, uh, you know, going as far as, uh, you know, doing uh, Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Which I do think but, is yeah. an apt, I do really think it is an apt metaphor. Um, yeah. and, and I have said that all you got to do is find uh, one of the few remaining Holocaust survivors that are still alive and ask them if this looks like anything they remember. And to a man and a woman, they say yes. It breaks my heart that they should have to in their lives see this happening again in a country that they thought they were safe in the, the, the people that i know you know personally who voted for trump you know and you know you might call trump a racist and all that kind of stuff and so i said well okay if he isn't a racist what attracts racist to him <laughs> why are why is he supported by so many racists and Nazis and skinheads and all that kind of good stuff? What is it about him? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then all the, it, I get crickets. I bet you do. <laughs> you know? I yeah, bet I you do. I get crickets. And I fall short to say, you know, because I understand, you know, with my, you know, ivory tower, you know, uh, intellectual way of thinking that there's implicit bias. You know what I mean? Implicit racism. The people who are racist don't even realize that they're racist. You no. know, and that's what I think a lot of these people are. They have no idea that they're racist. True. You can point it out to them left and right, and they're never going to accept it. Right. You know, so they'll never be able to get over it because they don't believe that they're racist. And you get crickets. I lost a couple friends by bringing that up to them. Well, people that I know. These are the times, you know, prior to the Civil Uh, War, uh, people lost uh, friends, families split. And um, as historians, like uh, Beschloss, who I was talking about yesterday, warn us that we are in as equally fraught a time that we are in danger of our country literally splitting apart, and it's splitting along the same, <laughs> the same ideological seismic lines that it did in 1861. And yeah. racism is very much a part of it. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, I always say otherism now because it was you know it was yeah. about you know slavery and blacks back then, but now it's about. LGBT communities, immigrants, for goodness sake, brown people, yeah, yeah, it's always the way, it's always the way, the Republicans have trafficked in this kind of crap, uh, pretty much since I can remember, Um, always culling uh, some group, some marginalized minority group from the herd, and energizing their voters by saying it is those people who are responsible for either making you less safe or taking your job or whatever. But they scapegoat and demonize. And um, I remember telling gays when they sort of replaced blacks for one election cycle as, as, you know, as the scapegoat group, I said, well, welcome, you now get to be the wedge issue. That's what it's called, right? The wedge issue, that which divides. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm so I had it up to here and then some with it. So, well, thank you yeah, for um, <laughs> for um, you know bucking me up. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, you have to turn off your intellectualism and <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, if they go low, hit them with an uppercut. <laughs> thank you thank you for that pugilistic okay. advice thank you right. bye Chris. you're welcome bye, bye. <laughs> yeah uh Kristen, who sent me the bruni article said while i might agree in premise with it i am just weary and tired of the if they go low we go high i am weary and tired of it all it's getting to the point where I'm ready to buy my own private island. Ha ha, yeah. yeah I think we're all we're all there. Um, and uh, Roger says, regarding Bruni, I understand that people tune out when you scream and won't listen to you with an open mind. But our current jerk-in-chief sure certainly attracted a lot of people by screaming. Yeah, even before he was president, and yeah, and being vulgar and name-calling and all the stuff that we're now not supposed to do. Uh, Roger goes on, talking with friends the other night, everybody present, even the women, said Trump will win again unless Democrats have a pretty non-threatening, pretty white guy up against him. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know. I, I'm, I, you know, I know where my strengths are and my weaknesses. And I don't necessarily know that I know uh, who the better candidate is in terms of winning. I don't know if I read the Times right all the time. Um, obviously, people who get paid big bucks to do just that, they don't know either a lot of the time. <laughs> the pundits, I don't think often they know any more than I do, but I at least know I don't know. So in the this huge mass of people who may be the person who's going to run against Trump, I couldn't tell you in a million years who that person should be. I, it could be we could run, uh, you know, Wiley Coyote and win. I mean, I, I don't know. Or it could be that uh, it's going to be a tight election. I don't know. All I know is it is a battle for the very soul of our nation and it is a battle for our nation. I've never felt anything more certainly than that. I have no doubt about that. Another caller is joining us. Hello. Hi. Good morning, Lynn. Hi. And uh, accommodations to Clarence for his very cogent, insightful commentary. Yes. Um, yes. At which I'm in full agreement with. Uh, first of all, it's it's not low to call those out who make it obvious 
with just brazen behavior that they that they are racist or are pandering to racists at the very least, that they disregard the rule of law, they have no respect for norms and traditions in government, and uh, they're perfectly willing to go to all sorts of ends, um, unethical or potentially unconstitutional, to retain to, re- to remain in power while becoming a minority party. There are parties that, that minority party in the sense that they don't rep- they don't win national the, the popular vote in national elections. No, and haven't for their senators represent right. far fewer Americans. Right. Their policies are unpopular, but they're intent on staying in power in in government anyway. I mean, you know, you 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 were you and Clarence were discussing how we're you know fracturing along the same lines as the uh, as in the pre-Civil War, and, and obviously I don't we're not going to have that event because it's not along geographic lines in this case, but you know the the right wingers like to point out that you know Donald Trump won. 2,200 counties as opposed to Hillary Clinton's 600. What they don't want to recognize... <laughs> is those are counties those full of cows, I know. Yeah, the, the 600 counties are where 53% of Americans live. Uh, duh. They're the counties that account for the majority of GDP. They have all the best universities. They have all the best hospitals. Right. They have all the best airports in the United States, such as they are. I mean... They're where everything is happening. I mean, I don't want to look, and I, and currently I'm not living in a large city, um, which I hope to be a temporary, you know, or even near one. I hope that to be a temporary, uh, a very temporary uh, situation. However, those are the counties, you know, what's the Civil War going to be? You know, well, the because, Civil War will be between uh, urban uh, America and uh, rural America. An ex-urban America. I mean, yeah, if, you're, except, if you were to you know, uh, talk geographically, that's what it'll be. Yeah, and un- and unfortunately, you know, urban America is what's driving this nation. I'm not saying, you know, yes, there are farms and factories and warehouses. It doesn't. It, I'm not. Dis- I'm not discounting that. But my God, you know, if you're if you're going to go, for example, even in even in uh, Illinois. Illinois isn't a blue state. Chicago is blue. Right. You know? Right. New York State. New, New, you know, New York State isn't blue. No. New York City is blue. Right. This is all correct. But, and that's where the people are. I mean, are, we're talking where the yeah. people are, not where there's acreage. Uh, the Republicans, uh, the Republicans represent a lot more acreage than they do people. And with Democrats, we don't have a lot of acreage, but we've got the people. And uh, it, 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 it works against us, obviously, in the way our uh, government is set up, uh, because uh, every state gets two senators, so a little tiny state will get two, and a huge state will get two. And um, in, in the House, uh, you know, look at the House delegation from... Pennsylvania. I mean, it's right. it's overwhelmingly Republican, even though this state is not overwhelmingly Republican. And then the other factor, the, the big factor that's just 
you know, killing honest political discourse in this country and real accounting in the, for, for actions in this country Me- is that the media is media. out. I mean, right. a lot of the media has been you know, commercialized. I mean, right. Certainly that's been a, 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 an ongoing theme of your, of your show recently um, with, uh, you know, with, with multimillionaire, even billionaire owners willing to lose money in order to advance an agenda. But then the, the other is that a, a lot of the so-called liberal media is just how they won't they they won't call they, they won't call obvious you know even corruption out. I know because they're afraid of being attacked. I right, mean, right, uh, and well, you know what? Uh, uh, John John Stewart nailed it when he said in relation to you know Samantha Samantha Bee's use of the word you know cunt that the right wing has a you know. They police standards that they would never adhere to, and it's all faux outrage on their part. Right, faux outrage. Yes, right, exactly. Look well, but it's a cudgel. It can be. It's a weapon, and they love yeah. weaponizing anything that they can. Hey, I've got to go because I got other callers that are are stacking up here. Um, <laughs> but I thank you. you Touch the nerve. Uh, bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, you don't call me at all. Yesterday, now. Hello, caller. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Hey, what I wanted to talk about a little bit, I saw something on the Internet. Well, it was a story on all the, uh, about a Polish woman who was a teacher. I think she must have been a survivor of the Holocaust or something. Uh Uh-huh. Did you see that? No, I did not. I got an award anyway. So I started looking looking up some stuff, and I, I was amazed at the staggering numbers of Polish people that died during the Holocaust. I mean, anywhere from three to five million, which the history books gloss over. If you look this up, look it up, and you'll see. And there was, uh, well, they have a total of 11 million some were Polish Jews, Polish Christians, but I, I don't know what the real number is, but it's quite a bit. But it seems like you don't, they don't uh, talk about that that much. It's like, kind of like this, these school shootings where if it's a mass number of certain people, then, you know what I mean, they don't focus on the amount of people died. Not, not to say it, it was a terrible thing. I, I agree 100% terrible. But I just, I was shocked because... I knew there were some Polish people that died, but being Polish, I thought, wow, I didn't realize that many Polish people died during that. It was a lot. It wasn't like 10,000. or It was millions. Right. Is what I was reading. Well. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. They, I have to tell you, the final solution in terms of uh, wiping out Jews uh, was... Um, actually most successful in Poland uh, that that was the largest Jewish population in uh, yeah in Europe it was absolutely wiped out uh, the 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 killing uh, fields in in Poland were extraordinary I must say though that even after the war the few Jews that straggled back uh, sometimes were killed after the war um, oh, yeah. There are horrific stories of uh, what happened to survivors who came back okay. and were blamed for somehow bringing it all down on 
on every it that war was maybe the most horrific the fact that people are already forgetting it and the lessons from it is just uh, astonishing to me. But yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, the po- yeah Poland took Remind a. Remind you how terrible. People yeah. Were. Uh, yeah. It, you know what I mean? Just how I mean, not to say they're not terrible now, but my gosh, that was horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. and let us remember, it was people just like us, uh, because right. th- that was Europe for heaven's sakes, uh, where all of our Western culture practically came from. And it was the, these were sophisticated, educated people. And so that's why when people say, well, that can't happen here, they're out of their minds. It happened there, and what was the difference? What was the difference? Right. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Uh, (laughs) Milton. Milton is right on it. He knows exactly what story, and he just sent it to me. I I can't share it all with you, but he says it is a story of an American teacher who, together with his students, shed light on the story of a a Polish woman who saved hundreds of Jewish children during the Holocaust, uh, uh, Irina Sendler. Uh, And I'm sure having uh, recently been to uh, Israel and to uh, Israel's uh, Yad Vashem, which is their memorial to the Jews killed in the Holocaust, um, that as you enter it, there are trees, beautiful trees lining this roadway. And each tree represents a person like this woman. And uh, there is a plaque and a story of someone who was not a Jew, who risked their lives, often lost their lives, uh, trying to save Jews uh, at the time. And, you know, Schindler, I guess, is the most, uh, is the one that's most recognized, Raoul Wallenberg, another recognized. But there are all these stories of regular people um, and a lot of women who exhibited such extraordinary courage that it makes you, I mean, I have no idea if I would be capable of that kind of bravery. I don't think anybody would know. I don't think any of us could answer. I know we would like to think we would be, but if you think about the fact, imagine that you were willing to sacrifice your own life for strangers. You were willing to sacrifice perhaps your own family's life because if you got caught, the Nazis didn't just take you out they would take your family and I don't know a lot of people who would take a risk like that they are exceptional truly exceptional so this is one more and I'll look forward to reading um, about her it these stories are always just they humble the hell out of you and they make you ask yourself uh, uncomfortable questions uh, 
I came across, and I, I just want to get this in for sure today, as I did not know about this book. It got a big review in the uh, New York Times today. It's a book that's called Amity and Prosperity. And of course, as I said yesterday, it has a it has a subtitle because you can't have a book anymore unless it has a subtitle. So the title of the book is Amity and Prosperity. The subtitle is, let me find it, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Okay. It is, uh, it turns out that this is a story about Amity, Pennsylvania, which is right over here, folks. I'm always pointing this way, but it seems like that is where everything is. Uh, Amity, Pennsylvania, in uh, adjoining Washington County, and Prosperity is also a town in, um, I had a friend who lived in Amity. I used to go there quite, quite often, wonderful little town. And so this is a, a book about uh, places that are right here in southwestern Pennsylvania and uh, written by a woman who moved there um, maybe about 15 years ago and watched as, ironically, a small community called Amity, which, you know, bespeaks amicable and everybody getting along together, amity, that a city with that name was literally riven because people took on different, took different positions on fracking. And uh, my understanding of the story from just reading the, um, it's something that you might want to read. Uh, the Times gives it, gives it pretty much a rave review. And she does the story by focusing on one family, pretty much. Um, a single mother, a nurse, who when Range Resources came calling in 2008, uh, signed up, said, oh yeah, I mean, I I mean, I, I could use the help. Um, you know, she was raising children and they were willing to lease. Uh, they wanted to lease her land. They wanted to lease the mineral rights to the land that her house stood on. And that would give her money to raise her children. So she said yes, like so many other people said yes. And then it's the story of what happened to her and uh, to her children and to her community and to her family. And um, it's not a pretty story. It's a story we've heard before, but it talks about uh, the first thing she sees is her old farmhouse just disappearing under a layer of dust and a cracked foundation almost, you know, within uh, weeks. A cracked foundation that occurs because of Range Rovers, uh, Range Rovers, well, maybe, uh, 
yeah, Range Resources, Range Rovers, their big trucks, uh, rumbling by uh, her farmhouse and uh, eventually uh, cracking the foundation. And then the health problems start in runny noses, watery eyes, headaches, mouth ulcers, um, a horrible smell uh, that she couldn't uh, get rid of from the wastewater. And uh, her, her teenage son literally became so ill that he couldn't go to school, that his, uh, there was arsenic for some reason in his, in his urine. Uh, their farm animals, their neighbors' farm animals, began dying, uh, bleeding horrifically to death, having seizures. And she sued, along with some other people, Range Resources, and she ended up having to, I think, first sue the state because the Environmental Protection uh, Department of uh, Environmental Protection wouldn't uh, wouldn't do their job. They wouldn't they wouldn't uh, help them. And the Times uh, Review says that what it shows is um, the fact that the Pennsylvania government had been uh, starved of funding and consequently the, en the environmental department that was supposed to be making sure range resources didn't do the very thing that was happening, that they didn't have the staff or the ability to really do battle. Uh, so the review says, you know, Range Resources doesn't look good in this book, but at least, you know, finding out that some corporation is bent on maximizing its profits over people is not anything we're going to be, like, dumbstruck by. That's a reality we know all too well. But she says the failure of Pennsylvania's government to regulate the company and to protect the people is the most dispiriting part of uh, of this of this account. Um, so I gotta tell you, uh, this is a book you might want to read: uh, Amity and Prosperity. And she said the community didn't rise to help the people that were badly affected and instead what developed is this widening gap between the people who were helped by range resources coming to town and people who were harmed and um, the review also points out that in this region that voted for Trump where coal miner and steel worker unions used to provide a sense of solidarity for the people who lived there now, the ascendancy of mineral rights and leases, which is a privately, privately owned, it's a private transaction between residents and the corporation, and that ended up pitting neighbor against neighbor. And the review ends with a quote from the nurse, the mother, 
about what punishment she would like range resources to receive, not that they'll receive any. She says, if I had my choice, I wouldn't send them to jail. I'd send them to my house to live. Amity and prosperity. Um, oh, there was a piece in the... Uh, <laughs> there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that uh, blew my mind. One of the ways that I've, um, you know, helped myself deal with the stress of uh, living in these uh, times in Donald Trump's America um, is that I found that meditation uh, was a good idea. And so I, I'm still struggling to be in the habit of it, to, you know, literally do it every day. Uh, when my life sort of takes off, um, as it has in the last few weeks, I, I forget to do it. And um, I really want to commit to doing it. There's an art, there was an article yesterday on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about how a lot of Americans are turning to meditation and that they mostly go to these uh, apps which you can have on your phone. And that's, in fact, what I do. Uh, the two biggest apps are one called Headspace, which is my, my app, and another called Calm, I believe. And what the apps do is every time you do remember to <laughs> meditate and you go back to your app, it says, you know, how many days you've done in a row. And I keep screwing up. I mean, for a while there, I had, you know, like 25 days in a row. And now I'm, you know, I do one here. I just forget. I do. And the article is about something I feel would only happen in our culture. A culture that is based on competition. On everything being competitive. Um... It's why, in some respects, I recoil from making things like music competitive or dance competitive. When, I mean, things that you just want to enjoy. Why make it winners and losers? And that's our culture. I mean, our, all the reality shows are about that. Um, winners and losers. And the thing is about winning and losing is mostly you end up with losers, right? There's only one winner. And um, that's, uh, that's really a definition ultimately of capitalism. It's what monopoly teaches anybody who's uh, you know, played the game uh, is that finally you keep, people keep losing, 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 and then... One person comes out on top. I hate what it does to us and our sense of what's a proper way to live with others. <laughs> Everything's a competition. I always, I always, I'm incapable of ranking things. I've always said I think that's a very masculine thing, but it's also, you know. All right, who do you who are your favorite top uh, what are your top 10 movies? What are your top 10 songs? What are your top 10, you know, and I think I don't know. I mean, I enjoy. I mean, there's so many. Why should I 
rank them. Why does someone have to be on top all the time? Uh, but so anyway, the article was about how in America, increasingly, people are engaging in essentially competitive meditation. Now, I got to tell you, that is such an oxymoron. The whole idea of meditation is to let all that kind of crap go, to get yourself in the present and focusing on the narrowest kind of thing. It would not ever involve competition. But it talks about these people who now like, they're practically cheating, making sure that they don't lose it. You know, seeing who can go the longest without any. And there's like, there's boards where you can look and see where you stand against other people in your meditation, uh, in your adherence to it. And I get it, it was, it was just another instance of how I just think we have a toxic culture. How it just ruins everything. Everything has to be competitive for us to pay attention to it. Everything. Survival of the fittest. Last man standing. Everyone for themselves. And I don't like that world. Unfortunately, I'm in it, but I, I don't like it. Ah, uh, yes, Mark, you've, oh, and before, though, I, this reminds me of something, because I was actually, I taped a show uh, last night, uh, a radio show, that will be on Saturday at 1 o'clock, and I want to alert you to it, um, and actually, one of the, it, it, it's on an, uh, a station that, uh, a show that plays oldies, um, and I was asked by the host, prior to us taping the show last night, to come up with a list of like my four favorite songs <laughs> from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I thought, no, I can't. And so I made a, I finally just said, okay, I'll, I'll make a list of some songs I liked. And I didn't, I, I sent him much more than he asked for. I said, you pick them. I, you know, I could pick thousands, thousands. So anyway, we taped the show last night, and I thought it was really, this guy is good. He put a really good hour together, and it's mostly an interview of me, and mostly political. And I must say, it's rather clear that he, uh, first of all, he listens to the show. And, um, and I really enjoyed it, and the fact he slipped the music in in just the right way, um, so I want to give you a heads up. It's on FM 88.3, 88.3, the Jay Thurber show. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, I would listen to that hour. I mean, I'm not going to because I did it, but I, I, I would, I think, um, and I, I want to alert you to this guy. He does a show every Saturday from noon to three. At 88.3, oldies. He was a big fan of Doug Hertz, who, of course, was the oldie king um, in town and beyond. And uh, he's, he's good. He's very, very good at his job. 
That was good old-fashioned radio in every way. 88.3, 1 o'clock on Saturday. Okay? I, I, I want to introduce you to this guy. He's good. And uh, Mark is reminding me of, yes, Mark, thank you, because this is. I, you know, we know Donald Trump has uh, an allergy to, the, to telling the truth. He just can't. He, he goes through his life lying, just constantly lying. Um, but this made its way into, um, I guess, one interview he did. Uh, well, the fact is Trump has said uh, that during the campaign, he was approached by many parents of American soldiers who had uh, died in Korea. And um, he said more than once he was approached by them and asked if there was any way they could, he could use his powers to get their uh, remains uh, repatriated, uh, brought home. And uh, somebody, I guess it came up again because he was in Korea. I mean, no, he was talking to the Koreans. Um, here's the problem with that story that he's told about parents of Korean vets coming up to him and saying, please bring my boy's body home. Uh, the average age of Korean veterans now is 87 years old. Their parents? <laughs> uh, their parents would be 110, generally. I mean, we're averaging things out here. Uh, and the fact that, again, uh, that didn't happen, wouldn't have happened, if maybe a 101-year-old had toddled up to him at a rally and said that maybe once, maybe I don't, I doubt it, but whatever. And he just lies. One of the uh, things that a lot of people took some refuge in as a distraction from life in America today, uh, that was a K, was the uh, St. Paul Raccoon uh, Odyssey. Did you see that? I mean, I guess if you're not on Twitter or social media, you don't know these things, or do you? Does network news eventually pick it up? Probably, because they've gone so soft. Uh, but it was a story of, I mean, a lot of people literally watched uh, for over, what, about 36 hours or more? This one raccoon <laughs> scaling a 25-story build is crawling up <laughs> the outside of the uh, UBS tower in uh, St. Paul, 25 stories. And um, I did not. I did not take part in the raccoon watch, but I do know that an awful lot of people did. And so it made uh, the story about it made the New York Times today. And, and this is the first time I knew as much about it. Um, 
in the time story, I learned that uh, you know it's perfectly normal to see a raccoon scale uh, the outside of a building 20 feet, 30 feet. As a matter of fact, the first time I saw that, it was um, at a house I was renting on Howe Street in Shadyside, and I had taken my garbage out, and I saw this raccoon making his way up the side of the house I was renting. And I was stunned. I didn't know they could crawl up because he was up to like the second or third story. It was three stories, one of those skinny, tall houses. And he had, um, he had a TV dinner tray in his, in, in one, uh, in his mouth, I guess it must have been because he was going like this. And I looked at, I laughed so hard. I wasn't laughing later when it, you know, weeks later when I realized uh, he and I guess his family were living in uh, the house because I would be, I began hearing them, you know, all the time uh, at, at night. Anyway, so I, yes, they do do that. But uh, this one expert, a biology professor, is quoted in the article as saying, but a 25-story building, that is extraordinary. So this raccoon was first spotted, and then people started, you know, it became a, a viral sensation. Um, and I guess uh, he got within two stories of the top of the roof, and wildlife officers had uh, baited a trap up there with cat food and other stinky, wondrous stuff that they hoped would lure him. But at the 23rd floor, he stopped on a ledge, on a window ledge. Two stories from the top, 23 stories up. And he curled up and went to sleep. I mean, he was exhausted. And then, when he woke up, incredibly, he started going down. He was just two stories from the top. He started going down. And he made it all the way down to the 17th floor before, again, he stopped on a ledge and they don't know what turned him around again. Uh, they said maybe he just saw that it was a quicker thing to go up than down. Uh, or maybe he saw the huge crowds and television cameras <laughs> that awaited him on the descent. <laughs> but he decided to reverse course and go up. And around 2 in a.m., Yesterday, 2 a.m. yesterday, the raccoon cleared the 25th uh, floor and landed on the roof and made a beeline for the cat food and uh, was trapped. And uh, wildlife officers did, uh, you know, obviously let him eat and sleep a little bit. And then they said it was a very skinny raccoon. I, I can see a picture of him. Yeah, it's a her, actually. It turned out to be a female. And she was in otherwise good health. And they took her to an undisclosed location somewhere where she'd be happier and uh, released her. That's what they say. They damn well better not have put a bullet in her head. Uh, whatever. But so that's the raccoon uh, story. 
And I guess it gave a lot of people some uh, solace <laughs> in these times. Uh, and quickly, and then we got to leave you. Uh, Barbara wrote, my Uncle Albert served. I hear Uncle Albert and all I think of is the Beatles. Uncle Albert. Okay. My Uncle Albert served in the Korean War. He was the youngest of nine children, all of them gone, all deceased. Four of his brothers served in World War II. His mother was born in 1888. I hope Trump did talk to her. <laughs> she was an immigrant, and she was an amazing woman. Uh, okay. Rocky Raccoon. That's a Beatle thing, too. I don't know. I got the Beatles in my head, probably because I was doing an oldie show, taping an oldie show last night. Remember that. It's great. So anyway, uh, yeah, we got tomorrow together, and I'll look forward to it. Uh, enjoy the, the nice weather while you can. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.